0: Hello and welcome to Serious Vintage, I'm Jeff Mose, I'm Nat Mose, and I'm Josh Chapel. Today we'll be talking about the rules changes coming with M14, the change of vintage championships away from Gen Con, the latest Columbus tournament report from the Team Sirius Open, new cards coming in M14 in a discussion of modern masters, and Serious Food and Drink discusses Alinea in Chicago.
1: Wow, we have quite a show today. We we have a lot of topics to get through, and you know we don't want to take three hours to do this. So let's get right on it. Um, let's do that. The the big thing coming out late last week was the announcement of rules changes that were coming with M14. I think there's two that are really going to affect vintage. The whole list of four also includes a templating change for unblockability, which is not a big thing in vintage and playing extra lands per turn. The the first one that we should address would be the change for Legendary and Planeswalkers.
0: Yeah, this definitely seems like the most significant to Vintage, I think. Just because of, I mean, first of all, we should probably say what the change is for anybody that (laughs) missed it. Right, so, the brief
1: version is that legendary now looks, uh, well legendary and planeswalker rules now look at each player individually rather than the entire game. Which means that each player can control a planeswalker named Jace or can control a
0: permanent called Valerian Academy. And those are probably the most important ones that you all run into <laughs> repeatedly. Right. Because, uh, Jace is a vindicate for Jace on a regular basis. And Talarian Academy is sinkhole for Talarian Academy on a regular basis.
2: Right. What Jace is, isn't a vindicate for Jace, it's a four mana, extremely narrow, <laughs> dread 4.
0: Yeah, right. it's true. Which is terrible. Yeah, yeah, it, it always feels like it's really depressing to legendary rule Jace, is what right. it comes down to. Sure. So you guys
1: are are on board with the instead of killing the opponent's Jace, you get your own
0: Jace. So you I both think have Jays. I think I'm okay with it. Like, or I Slary appreciate Academy or I whatever. appreciate what it's trying to do. I, I I
2: will admit on Thursday night when I read the article, I thought the sky was falling. And then <laughs> really? I, I climbed up it's, out of the rubble and realized that it just really doesn't matter. I mean it's sort of
1: a failure of flavor, right? I mean, we we're, we're looking at you know, we're thinking about creatures, like, legendary creatures are supposed to be one of a kind, like, you only get your one of Umazawa's Jit, because there was only one Umazawa, and he only had one sword, that sort of thing. Right. Yeah. And so now, in a game of vintage, you know, both players can have Umazawa's Jit, and in a game of five-player commander, he, all five players can have one, which, I mean, he, who really needs that many swords, right? <laughs> right.
0: Well,
2: I, and I think, it, speaking to the flavor that, it's things like this are going to be inevitable when you, from a game design standpoint, when you design a game that like outlives itself by like fifteen right. years. Eventually, things are going to change, and you're going right. to have to do things like this.
1: Well, I, yeah. I, I I think that's part of it. I think this is going to be an interesting new way to build legendary. Creatures and Planeswalkers, or Legendary Permanents and Planeswalkers. They can do a lot more neat things as far as design, like we're talking about upgrading Legendary Permanents, so you can have, you know, a one-drop Legend that upgrades to a two-drop Legend when you play it, that upgrades to a three-drop Legend, that sort of thing. This also opens the door for Legendary dual Lands.
0: It does indeed. Yeah. I think I agree that it's a major flavor fail, um, (laughs) but... Overall, I think that Wizards is ultimately more interested in maintaining a cohesive and fun interactive game. Right. And I know that there were a lot of people who didn't really like the Legend Rule the way that it was. Like, it just didn't, didn't make a whole lot of sense to use your Legends like that. So, is it a perfect solution? I'm not sure, but I think it, to me... It's workable. It'll lead to, to, to more interesting game states.
2: In other formats, you know, sometimes you have, you're drawing other Planeswalkers and games go long and they're dead cards. And Really, they're no longer dead cards because you can do kind of a negative, you know, thing
0: on your Planeswalker and then just play another one and get rid of the one that only has one loyalty.
2: Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm.
0: So. Yeah, that, that that's the other important part of this rule is that if you play a second legendary permanent or planeswalker of the same type that you control the one that was that comes out oh you decide yeah you pick yes oh my bad you You pick so so one of them dies and one of them stays and you pick yeah that's why
1: the that's why the uh, dark depths uh, thespian stage combo works
0: Oh, I thought the Thespian stage worked because it was the latest dark depths in play, but apparently I'm wrong.
1: I suppose that's true, but no, you actually get to decide. So you could, you could choose to sacrifice either. Yeah, I guess we should back up the, uh, (laughs) <laughs> part of this change, part, part of this rules change means that there's a new combo possibility with Dark Depths, which obviously is m- most used for making Merit Lage 2020 flying indestructible tokens. Dark Depths now works with Thespian Stage, and we'll, I think we'll probably write this combo down in the um, text part of the show so that we don't have to explain it all. Basically, they now combine together to make an uncounterable 2020 token. Rather than playing Vampire Hexmage, which is counterable and can be removed, that sort of thing. So And ultimately
0: uh, just isn't a very good dude when you don't have dark depths. Right, right, yeah. Not that Thespian Stage is great when you don't have dark depths, but... It's probably not. (laughs) At least it doesn't come into play tapped and it taps for one mana, which dark depths doesn't.
1: Right, right. So, I mean, the possibility of this combo entering vintage in a probably a workshop deck or landstill deck, something that's going to be, or yeah, an entirely new shell that's going to be using this combo. Um, I, I think that's that's got some interesting possibilities.
2: I, I mean, agree. in in the the whole planeswalker legend thing, from a broad spectrum, if you're playing with more than one of of a planeswalker or a legendary permanent, right. it's going to lower the amount of dead cards that you draw over. The course right. of a game, I think we can all agree that the less, the lower amount of dead cards that you draw is better.
1: Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, think about uh, Vendillion Click. I mean, like a lot of times you would limit to two or three of those so that you didn't draw extras. Now you can go ahead and play four, and if you attack with your Vendillion Click, um, you can play a second one to untap and
0: do the duress effect again. This yeah, also... I mean, Vendillion Click
2: is, is, was
0: already really good. Right. Now <laughs> it's just better. Right now it's better. Uh I think that this also <laughs> this also helps out people who are forgetful <laughs> and just play right. a second click into their currently existing click. Now they don't lose both of them. They just. I,
2: I've definitely seen games of magic a while ago with both players having Jit in play. It's been pretty awesome. Right.
1: <laughs> yeah. So now that's now that's legal. That yeah. Seems that's good. Totally legal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I I, I think this is going to be a. Overall, there's going to be some strategic different. Well, actually, some tactical differences as far as how things are played. But I really don't think it's going to mess things up badly.
0: No, ultimately, um, it just changes things. Like I, don't, I think that right. the only big losers here are Phyrexian Metamorph and Phantasmal Image and how they were sometimes rarely played to uh, oh. to legendary rule kill things.
1: Yeah, Phantasmal
0: Image doesn't really play it anyway all that much. Yeah. But,
1: but Phyrexia Metamorph okay, so with Phyrexia Metamorph now if you're a workshop player, you use Phyrexia Metamorph targeting, say, your opponent's Grizzlebrand, Um now you get your own Grizzlebrand. Yeah. Is that better or worse than killing the original grit? Really?
0: I, I think it's better.
1: I think it probably is too.
0: Because I think that as as shops, if if you get that opportunity, which I don't know why you have that opportunity, but clearly you just got it because your opponent played Gristlebrand and then passed the turn, you can play out enough lock pieces using the cards that you're about to draw that they will probably have a hard time exercising their Gristlebrand through that. I I
2: feel like it's worse. Really? I feel like your opponent just draws cards off their own Gristlebrand and kills you anyway.
0: Yeah, but you wouldn't have the opportunity to legendary rule metamorph it anyway in that case. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, frankly, if your opponent has Grizzlebrand
1: in play, you're probably going to lose anyway, whether you copy it or remove it. So, I don't know. I, right, I, yep. It could go either way on this, and I'm sure it depends a
0: lot on what the rest of the game is doing at the time. So. I'm sure that we'll find out, because this situation okay. will come up.
2: Right. Well, let's talk about the, the other only relevant rules change, that uh, yep. would be the cyborg construction.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what changed there?
2: So now you have to have at least 60 cards in the main deck and up to 15 cards in your sideboard. Okay. And for subsequent games, um, you don't have to keep the same amount of cards in your main deck. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes, yeah, it does.
0: Yeah. So So you can go into, after game one, you have 60 cards in your main deck and 15 cards in your sideboard. You can go into game two with 75 cards in your main deck and zero cards in your sideboard. Or the reverse of this is going into game one with a 75 card main deck and a zero card sideboard. And then game two, you take out 15 cards, you have a 60 card main deck and a 15 card sideboard. So essentially, is that one right?
1: Yes. It is, right? Yep. Yep. Okay.
0: It presents interesting situations, and I think that the my big question coming out of this is, we know that sometimes we have to make difficult decisions when deck building in order to cut down to 60 cards. The question of whether it is ever optimal to actually go into game two with 61 cards is definitely out there for me, because anything that you say is worth being the 61st card is better as the 60th card. Right. So I think that for people who are really disciplined and good at the game, this probably will change nothing.
1: No, but it
0: shouldn't. <laughs> as, as far as being an open possibility for people who are not as disciplined or who just sort of like are taking the easy way and don't really know what to cut because they don't want to take anything out, this could lead them into making some bad decisions.
1: Yeah, I I think the thing to remember is that there's always going to be best cards. Yep, exactly. And you always want to play the best cards
0: and not, you know, the best card plus a couple other
1: good cards.
0: Yeah, Chapel and I were talking before the show, and he was saying, well, I mean, against Shops, you might want that extra land as a 61st card, but in that situation, you would be better off if you had that extra land and only 60 cards.
1: Right. Well, I I was thinking about the Rogue Hermit deck, uh, that got played at the Columbus tournament this weekend, which we'll be talking about a little bit later. I think both players there were using Ley Line of Anticipation in their sideboard. Mm-hmm. So I mean, potentially, you could have the 15 card sideboard with Ley Line of Anticipation in it, and then board in for Ley Line of Anticipation without taking
0: anything out. But that makes you less likely to see Ley Line of Anticipation.
1: Exactly. <laughs> So I don't know. I mean, every every time I think about this, it's just like I still only want 60 cards in my in my yeah. main deck.
2: Yeah, it's definitely interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I, you know, it adds a different layer, and I mean, that's cool. The thing that I really don't like about the article is they say the real benefit of this change is basically if you miss sideboard, and right. now you don't get a
0: game loss. Well. That's a rule. If you choose not to follow the rule, you should be punished. You shouldn't change the rule. (laughs) Yeah, I I, I agree agree with that. that. I don't think Wizards is under any obligation to dumb down the (laughs) rules so that dumb people don't get game losses. Right. Yeah. I I mean, if you want
2: to play a game successfully, you should learn to play the game by the rules,
0: right? I I agree. Though I know that when Abe came on here, he said that people get very pissed off when they get disqualified even if they are the ones who are breaking the rules, and it is in Wizards' best interests to keep the player base happy, even if that means dumbing down the rules so that less people break them. Right. So. Yeah. I don't know. I I am Maybe we're all just elitists, and we think that everyone should be held to the same standards. I think we're like all just in, old in baseball. And you
2: could you can only take
0: steroids on Sundays, but you can still <laughs> legally play baseball, and then you're good. <laughs> I'll stick with old and cranky rather than elitist. I'm I'm better with that. (laughs) I I
1: think the other thing, I mean, we do have to remember, this does open up some interesting possibilities. I mean, someone could develop a sideboard tactic around this that does work and does utilize the... You know, variable number of cards, right. <laughs> and that's cool. That's the part I really like. Right? Yeah, that would be neat. And I, I mean, the, you know, you're talking about things like you know, playing a bunch of tutors that you would be able to find a bunch of one ofs and then board out some of your one ofs in games two and three that you don't need. I mean, that that all seems kind of neat. I'm on the fence about this one. I think it, I think it will end up being fine, but I could see it causing some problems.
0: I don't see how it could cause problems. How do you think it could cause problems?
1: I don't know. I just think that you're going to run into. I think there would be some cases of. It coming down to you know, one player's word against another as far as sideboarding goes, and I don't know. I don't I don't know exactly
0: what would happen, but I
1: don't know. I know it makes me nervous when they change things.
0: I know Abe was worried about it because of the possibility of people basically people showing up with odd combinations of sideboard and main deck. Right. And how it, it becomes increasingly hard to track what is where right. in, in deck checks because that's so variable now. Well, so, it seems like it just doesn't matter. Yeah, I I, I guess so. But game one still matters. Like, the sheet has has to reflect (laughs) what's going on in game one. I I sympathize with him there and and what this could possibly mean for that.
1: So, speaking of changing things, (laughs) <laughs> when the events list for Gen Con went up at the beginning of the month, or what was that, a couple of weeks ago, it turned out there was no Vintage or Legacy champs on there. And there was a bit of an uproar over this. It's hard to judge the size of uproars in Vintage because yeah, I was, it's like, I was gonna say, it's, like <laughs> it's like 12 people who yell at, yell at wizards. <laughs> But anyway, so the, the thing is, Wizards did not schedule either of the older Eternal formats for Gen Con and have since announced that they are going to have an Eternal weekend of Vintage and Legacy elsewhere, and you're supposed to find out about that this week, which probably means
0: tomorrow, unfortunately, so it doesn't get to be on the podcast. And happy 20th anniversary. Right. I think ultimately what happened here is this. They were keeping it on the down low because the event that this is going to happen at has not been announced yet. Right. And someone forgot that Gen Con was going to post their events list on, I think it was May 1st, yeah. Uh, and that just fell through the cracks, and suddenly their information was leaked before they were prepared to actually make the announcement. Wait, right.
2: wait, you haven't heard about Grand Prix North Korea yet?
0: <laughs> oh, man, I'm so there. Uh-huh. Um, no, you're not. So, so this is just something that, I think that there was a corporate fail that a bunch of people just missed this because they all assumed that someone else had checked this out and and made and verified that they were safe and holding off.
1: That sounds right from a corporate perspective. Yeah, Uh, because
0: corporations are amazing at assuming something is covered when it actually isn't.
1: Right. The real problem here is actually not that they didn't have champs at Gen Con. The real problem is that they didn't tell us this until three months before Gen Con. um, Right after the Gen Con pre sale tickets had been on sale for five months.
2: And people have bought plane tickets.
1: Right. And you're you're looking at people who do travel travel from around the world, come from Europe, come from Japan and, you know, are now Would be looking forward to playing Vintage Champs or Legacy Champs or both, and now they can't do it at Gen Con, so they're sort of stuck with these travel arrangements that they don't need.
0: Ultimately, though, I mean, just for myself, I'm really looking forward to Gen Con still. I'm still planning on going, and I've got to say that Vintage for an uncut sheet of Antiquities seems better to me than Vintage Champs.
1: Yeah, they do have uh, several vintage and legacy events, and one of them is going to be a vintage event for an uncut sheet of Antiquities. There's also a vintage event for an uncut sheet of Urza's Saga. And the the first event there also gets you entry into the Gen Con Champs, which uh, is the super cool draft format where you first draft one of each pack from the History of Magic,
0: which means that you could... Open a pack of beta, <laughs> which means you take, the, you don't open the pack of beta. You just sell it unopened. Right. I think you, you
1: for that event, you get your packs and then leave. <laughs> yeah,
0: you just get your packs, drop, and sell. Right. <laughs> but when, anyway, I don't know that sounds really cool. It. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a really cool idea. I'm impressed with the events that they have turned out, even without champs. There. Plus, I've already gotten permission from my wife. To hang an uncut sheet of cards on our wall. Yeah, me too.
2: In the bedroom. <laughs> <Not> <laughs>
0: on the In ceiling. the bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: and I think the other thing is that I feel like those event, or at least the first event, the uh, uncut sheet of antiquities event. I feel like that's going to sort of be the de facto vintage champs event. At I agree. Like I think a lot of people. I mean, I think most of the people who are going to play in vintage champs are still going to play in that, and it's still going to end up being. I don't know if it'll be 100-plus people, but it would probably be close to that.
0: And I think it's going to be a good representation of vintage from around the country with very skilled players turning out. Right. Yeah,
1: I I expect that event will be fine, and I'm looking forward to it a lot along with the rest of Gen Con.
0: Yeah.
2: And that said, I mean, while we're on the topic of Gen Con, if anyone listening to this has a hotel room downtown that they don't plan on using, please let us know because we will take it.
0: Yeah, we're badly looking for a hotel room right now. (laughs) Indeed. It's funny because we were like, oh yeah, or at least I was like, well, Vintage Champs was canceled, therefore there should be some hotel rooms opening up, right? (laughs) No, because ten vintage players does not constitute a lot of hotel rooms. If only they were all sharing two rooms and (laughs) you
1: Anyway, speaking of tournaments, we also had the recent Team Series Open in Columbus. Your segues um, are so on tonight. Thank you. I've <laughs> been practicing. We had 17 players for the Team Series Open. What's sort of interesting about this is that we're sort of looking at a a drastic change in the expected Ohio meta game versus what is actually turning out. <laughs> what I mean by that is. It used to be that when you played in Ohio, you'd plan to play against workshop decks, and you'd plan to play against good workshop players playing them. At this tournament, we had one workshop deck, which didn't have a full complement of spheres. It had four lodestone golems and, and was mostly a combo aggro deck with Forge Forgemaster. And then the rest of the format was blue, uh, there was one, no, two dredge decks, one mono red control slash aggro deck, and a lot of combo. And in fact, the top eight included two Rogue Hermit decks with slightly different builds and a Burning Long? Two Burning Longs.
0: Seems pretty good. And I'd just like to say that in predicting the Ohio is no longer Shop City, I was right. So I just want (laughs) to note that I was right in my prediction of Ohio. No longer being a shop central area. I mean, the economic
2: recession was pretty
0: tough to the Rust Belt.
1: That's true. (laughs) We closed down a lot of workshops. A lot of factories are gone.
0: Yeah. Now we have a whole lot of rogue hermits. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, this is getting to be a really dumb metaphor. (laughs)
1: And yet it's so fitting.
0: I I hear that we had some new faces as well as old faces turning up for this tournament.
1: Yeah, that's actually one of the nice things about the Columbus tournament is we had out of the 17 players, 9 were from the Columbus area, which is a good start. That we've in the past a lot of our players have come down from Cleveland and we you know, we did have our usual group come down from Cleveland and we had actually a group come down from Michigan as well, which is quite a drive. Thank thank them for coming out. But having nine players from Columbus, some of the PTQ grinders, and some of the players from Fogatas, things like that, like we're we're doing pretty well. I feel at getting sort of a grassroots effort of, at building vintage and building interest in vintage, just getting people in the door. Seems pretty good. Yeah, actually, one of the things that we talked about that the Comic Town tournaments used to have the achievements list. I don't know if either of you played there when they did that. I had to, I did not. Okay, um, they used to have vintage achievements, which is actually something that kevin Cron had de- uh, had designed that um um you'd get during each match you could mark down a tally for every time that you say drew seven or more cards in a turn, or if you had all five moxes in play at one time, you could get a get an achievement point mm-hmm. or if you Attacked for exactly one, say with Goblin Welder or Spirit Token or something like that. And you could tally up all these achievement points that you got and then at the end of the match you could turn those in and whoever got the most or whoever, or in a drawing between whoever had a tie for the most would get uh, a door prize like a, a deck box or a play mat or something like that. We actually, I was talking about this with the the store owner and actually with uh, Kevin as well, and we're trying to figure out some new ideas for how to perfect that system or what we can do to improve that system or what we can do to replace that system. I know that there were people at the tournament who (laughs) missed it. We didn't do it this time, and there were people who missed it. Really? They commented on, you know, where were the achievement lists, which I don't know if that actually means that they missed it, or <laughs> you know, ironically, or whatever. But you know, so we didn't do it this time, and we're we're trying to figure out a way that not only that we can bring this back to the Columbus tournaments, but that we can start this as a more vintage-wide effort. To build interest. Mm -hmm. I mean, sort of you have this, have this vintage game and you want to, you know, attract additional players sort of from the EDH realm where they have, (laughs) they have similar achievement lists in some areas. Yeah. This is just something that we've been talking about and thinking about. If anyone has any ideas or they should feel welcome to give a comment or talk to me or Kevin Cron and let us know.
2: Kind of of in the same line, not, not really, but. You know, I noticed that, yeah, I wasn't at the tournament, but I noticed that at your discussion uh, mm-hmm. at dinner, I think, afterwards, you posted some things that came up that I thought were, the two that I thought were the most interesting were, oh, yeah. what card in the history of Magic has drawn players the most cards, Yeah. and what card in the history of Magic has dealt the most damage?
1: A group of us sort of met at the bar after the tournament, and we talked about some of these questions for a long time. I'll post the questions in the uh the article that goes with the episode, but yeah, it, it brought up some interesting discussion, and there were some interesting considerations that came up as well.
2: I mean, but obviously, I think... there's there's no way to answer the question, <laughs> right? Factually. Yeah,
0: I think it's dangerous actually to get into spectual speculation in this venue. Oh
1: yeah, yeah, it's way too <laughs> it's way too big, way too broad, and there's there's a lot going on. Yeah, but, but anyway, it's it's they're they're interesting questions to consider. Moving on from the, the tournaments, we should look at some of the upcoming cards in sort of both M14 and the Modern master set, which are coming out this summer. I think they've had some interesting cards for M14.
0: I think that there are some interesting cards, but... I think, I think that there is an interesting card. It, it, yeah, <laughs> it's, it, it's a core set. We can't really expect a lot from a core set because, I mean, they save... Actually, interesting and unique mechanics generally for expansions.
1: I I don't know that that's necessarily true. I think that they, I think that a lot
0: of the core set cards end up being powerful because they're more simple. I guess there's that too. Like our first card, Young Pyromancer, is fairly simple when it comes down to it.
1: Right. But um, I, I think
0: the ability is actually pretty powerful. It's it's a fairly aggressive card. Young Pyromancer is the answer to that question that we were asking earlier about what's the one in a red drop. Yeah, yeah I red. was thinking that too. I, I, I love that this him.
2: card costs 2 mana and not 3 mana. That's, yeah, I agree. That's great. And it's a 2-1. Right?
1: Yeah. It's a 2-mana two 2-1. Two like, by itself, that's already okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, not vintage okay, but okay. <laughs> right.
0: No, it, it, it's, it's decent. I mean, it, it puts it on the right curve... Right. And it's appropriate. Nat, what's the card?
1: Young Pyromancer costs 1 and a red uh, for a 2-1. Uh,
2: whenever you cast an instant or sorcery spell, put a 1-1 one, one red elemental creature token onto the battlefield. Right. So you make little tiny fire things.
0: Yeah, uh, I, exactly. I can see this going a couple of different ways. I mean, obviously in limited f- formats, this is going to be huge because it's just mm-hmm. free dudes. In Vintage, seems a little bit weaker because your opponent is casting cool things like Ancestral Recall and Time Walk, and you're getting, well, a little 1-1, well, wish, wish they it, were sap rollings.
1: I think what you have to look at is sort of compare it to, say, Quirion Dryad. And Quirion Dryad is good because it's a storm spell that you play before you play your other storm spells.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, the young Card
2: also says you
0: only, so it doesn't count right. your
2: opponents. yeah.
0: Oh, is it really? Oh, I, yeah. I was under the impression that I, it was a punish your opponent for for casting. No, space. No, no, My bad. Yeah, it's okay. The card's but totally not vintage playable. I, I guess think it's playable. not. So there are two ways that this card can go. There's the aggressive deck that is using right. this to bump up the clock. And then there's the other deck that is a combo deck that is using these creatures it is creating as a fuel for something.
1: I think those are the same deck. I think the other thing that you're missing is that it could be used against workshop decks. Because it turns any spell you have into a permanent, which is good against both
0: Tanglewire and Smokestack. Oh, that's a good point. And blocks Loadstone Golem and and things like that. I I was just thinking about, like, Sack Dudes for mana, Sack Dudes for cards, whatnot. Nah, that's not gonna happen.
2: I would have liked to see the elemental creatures
0: also have haste. Mm, that'd be pretty good. That would be really <laughs> powerful for one and a red 2-1.
1: I, I think one thing that this That's card still not allow,
0: really powerful, though.
1: Right. I think one thing this, this card could allow would be something like a Groatog deck, except it would be able to play red more instead of green, so you wouldn't need to focus as much on getting green out could instead play things like Lightning Bolt and ingature rather than going so hard into green. <laughs> things that Where are your already very will well trigger that.
0: your pyromancer. What's that? Your ingature will not trigger your pyromancer. That's okay. But, but you're firmly into cards that are good in vintage, right? And I'm, I'm
2: talking
1: like blue-red tempo deck.
0: Yeah, I think gr- green has good. a hard time sometimes in that right. regard. Speaking of green, <laughs> okay, <laughs> the, the
2: one card in M14.
0: Right, this is Chappell's card. This is the one yeah. that
1: he
2: thinks is actually going to make a difference. Yeah, it's a is sorcery. It? it costs three colorless and two green. Targeted what? creature gets plus seven, plus seven, and gains trample until
0: end of turn, and it must be blocked this turn. Yep, the card this, is not seen. This is it. This is the one. So good. <laughs> and I think that the big part of this card
1: is the art, right? Yeah. That's, yeah. that's the only reason I'm playing it. Yeah. It's got a giant cat. Diving into a fishbowl with some (laughs) merfolk in it.
2: (laughs) Man, enlarge is going to be so good. (laughs) I mean, if you've got a land, a Mox Emerald, a Mox Ruby, a Lotus, a Raging Goblin, and an enlarge on turn 1, that's 8 damage. Boom. That's a good point. That's that's
0: really, really strong. If you save it until turn 2, you could play Berserk, too. (laughs) (laughs) And then you could have emptied your hand for... Only 16 damage. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, the actual green card would be Scavenging Ooze, which is right. a reprint out of the,
0: what What was that printed in originally? It was in Commander, I know, cause yeah. I had to scour the internet for, oh, for, right. uh, Devour for Power decks. Yeah. Because Scavenging Ooze, just that one card, was worth more than the Devour for Power MSRP. Yep. Yeah. Now it's not. Yeah, they're no. reprinting it. So good job, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, I won. Um, yeah. Speculation. Right. But Scavenging
1: Ooze is a has already been played in vintage, I think most notably in the Rug decks and sort of the, the junk decks, black white, green decks, where it's a sort of a ancillary graveyard hate card as well as a pretty strong attacker.
0: Scavenging Ooze just does a lot of stuff right. for one in a green. Yep. He's a really powerful contender on the board and he's really unassuming when he hits the board, but then you immediately realize how big of a threat that he is.
2: Right. I don't play a lot of standard, but it's going to be interesting how the interactions from scavenging ooze being in standard and using the stack, um, right. you know, change that format. I don't know if there are any things currently that really use the stack, but I mean, this is huge. Yeah, this is going to be a lot of stack stuff.
1: It's also interesting just that it's being reprinted and is going to lower the cost of this once $40 card. Right. Yeah. Although that's not usually a concern for vintage, like I think it's, people generally want to own the actual cards and are, right. you know, will, I'll look forward to playing against more actual scavenging oozes rather than planes with sharpie on them.
0: Uh, scavenging oozes is it uncommon, right? No. no, it's a rare. Is it a rare? Okay. I was trying to figure out how far the price on this was gonna tank. <laughs> But probably, probably yeah, prob- probably 15, 20 bucks, I would think. Yes. I guess I would be surprised if it stayed that high, but. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, it just depends on whether it gets played in standard or not.
0: hmm mm-hmm.
1: Another thing that's coming out in M14
0: is the return of slivers. Sort of. They're not quite like the slivers of old because they sort they're of. Because they're better. Yeah, they're better, but at the same time, they're losing part of the flavor that was Slivers. Right. Because the dumbest thing about Slivers was sitting down to play an opponent's Sliver deck. Yeah, because when you were both playing Slivers, you mean. Yeah, exactly. Right. When they both got their own (laughs) drawback. it was was terrible. Right. The new Slivers, for anybody that doesn't know, only affect Sliver creatures that you control. So there's none of the Crossing the Battlefield that old Slivers had. But what it means is that they've reprinted some of the meat and potatoes slivers that every sliver deck ran – Right. Which means the like notable it, one would be predatory sliver, which yeah, is right. effectively muscle sliver. Muscle sliver. Which means that in eternal formats, you can play four muscle sliver and four predatory sliver to get and four really, of the white one. <laughs> yeah, to get really beastly slivers really fast. Yeah, I
1: think this actually has some legs as a vintage deck. I know it doesn't get played all that often, but every once in a while it'll show up. Not necessarily top eight or anything, but it'll show up. And
2: is isn't slivers in eternal formats just like a worse Murfolk.
0: Uh, I think that it generally perceived as that because yeah. Merfolk have not maybe as much of the aggro power, but they have a lot more control power.
2: Well, I mean your island walk is gonna be bonkers. Yeah, it's yeah, it's gonna true. Be better than flying in a lot of cases. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Is slivers better? Maybe not, but Slivers can do a lot of interesting things, even if they aren't a straight control package. There's a lot right. of flexibility in what slivers can do because so many of them have been printed over the years, so we'll, we'll see. Yeah, I, I think it could be
1: interesting. I, I mean, it sort of depends on what new slivers get printed and what mm-hmm. someone decides to do with it, but I, you know, I, I think there could be a sliver deck somewhere.
0: Yeah. Plus you have infinite mana and dudes combo in Sliver Queen and Heartstone and Ashnod's Altar. That's not gonna happen. I don't think they're
2: reprinting Sliver
0: Queen. <laughs> that doesn't mean that doesn't matter for Eternal formats. Yeah. I, actually, I, they I, they can't yeah. reprint Sliver Queen because she's on the reserved list. My <laughs> mouth. <laughs> they printed her as an oversized Commander card, specifically getting around the reserve list by making it not tournament Play. legal because it was oversized.
1: Right. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. So I I think actually. Looking at our list of M14 cards, I think a lot of them are green.
0: Yeah, it's true. I was I was reading that down, and the, the next two are in, both including green. including enlarge. Yeah, including enlarge. In but um, euphemisms aside.
1: Yeah. <laughs> the, the next one being uh, Savage Summoning, which is basically it makes your it's uncounterable itself. It costs one green, and it makes your next creature card uncounterable, and it comes into play with a one one counter on it. Does it give it flash too? I think it does. Yeah. Yeah, I don't really know that this is an actual vintage playable
0: card. I think I don't it would think be, it is.
1: No, I think it would be interesting as a Tarmogoyf
0: enhancement and haste. That's that's exactly what I see it as too. Yeah. Because in in a situation where you want to play your Tarmogoyf, especially since other decks in vintage do play Tarmogoyf, you suddenly have the edge when your Tarmogoyf is savagely summoned with a plus one <laughs> plus one counter on it. Right. You you've yeah, instantly I- won the Tarmogoyf war.
1: Yeah, I think that ends up being interesting. And the other thing is that Tarmoglyph, without this, uh, well, Tarmoglyph by itself, it's just a beater, as they say. So it doesn't, you don't necessarily want to tap out for it if you can avoid it, and this mm-hmm. actually allows you to play it at the end of your turn, or yeah, the end of true. your opponent's turn, which is, I mean, not a huge benefit. It's not like you're gonna, I mean, you're two for one yourself here, but uh, it's got some interesting tactical a- applications, I think.
0: It seems okay.
1: Yeah, I think it's fine. I'm not gonna worry about it in Vintage. I don't think it's actually gonna see play, but yeah, it's it's it's,
0: it's too much of a loss of card advantage to be playable in Vintage. But it'll probably splash in other formats. Yeah. Finally, for what we
1: have spoiled right now, they also have the next version of Lanowar Elf. So you can now play 12 copies of one one green dudes who make green mana.
0: What does this guy do?
1: He's a Lanowar Elf.
0: Oh, is he really just straight Lanowar Elf? Lanowar Elf with a different name.
1: Oh. Well, I that's, i mean, that's neat. There, there's some viability some for this already since Elves is a deck and... But, but do, do we really I think, need the, I think the you ninth just choose through 12th? I, I think you just choose which Llanowar Elf variations you want.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I just it's, don't know.
1: It's really just sort of an interesting thing that they did. So moving on from M14, we're also looking forward to Modern Masters, which is going to be hitting in three weeks, right, Josh Chappell? You're going to Vegas.
2: I am. I pre-registered for the Grand Prix this morning. What number were you, do you know? I have no idea, but I've heard they're already over a 1,000. I
1: bet they are. Jeez. This event sounds monstrous. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm just going to have a good time. It's going yeah. to
1: be heinous. I wonder if they're going to be prepared for this. <laughs>
0: I imagine I don't know. That they have to be because they have to see the kind of buzz that this is generating and the people... Right. I, oh, I,
1: they knew what they were doing.
0: Yeah. My, my goal for
2: the whole Grand Prix is uh, I want to open a bridge from below and I want to win a game with a bridge from below in play. <laughs> good. Nice. I, I, that's a that's a very good goal. More power to you. <laughs>
1: yeah. So I mean the, I think the individual cards aren't all that interesting. I mean, obviously they're all reprints, no, so no. it's like everything that's made a splash in vintage is already made a splash in vintage. Yeah, yeah I, like I mean there
2: said. are some massive cards in here though, like yeah. uh Good Elsbeth, Fendillion Click, Dark Confidant, uh, Parmaigoi. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of good <laughs> stuff.
0: I was I was looking at the list, and I mean there are a lot of cards in this set that I would not mind having play sets of. Right. At the same time, there are also a bunch of cards that I look at in this set, and I'm like, what? chiefly (laughs) chiefly being Thalid. You love that card. I know I love (laughs) the the card. You're the tosser. But I I just look at it and I'm like why is this in this set? I don't get that either. This did not need to be reprinted
1: for any reason. I I think the idea that I heard somewhere was that they were pushing different strategies rather than colors. So instead of you know, drafting the blue-red deck, you're gonna be drafting the tokens deck, which will have a thalad in it.
0: But I, I, I guess- I get they, it.
1: No, it's, I mean, I, I'm not defending it. It's just- I feel thalid. like it,
0: it seems kind of counterintuitive in this set to specifically design it because you want certain strategies to be draftable in this set. Considering the cost of drafting this set in the first place is gonna be <laughs> something unholy, they, like- not every card in the set can be a home run, though.
2: Yeah, well, <laughs> if, I've seen drafts for 30 bucks, I and mean, that's not terrible. I'm not
0: saying that every card has to be a home run, but, uh, Thalid just, is, is, is <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that's a sacrifice bunt, at least. As, as I said, um, I, I would have much rather seen Thalid in M14, as a herald of more support for the Thalid kingdom. Well, there are some, <laughs> there are some <laughs>
1: sapperling generators in M14.
0: There are, there are, but we're, we're but not I mean, seeing- They're all
1: unplayable, right? So, yeah, so
0: yeah that, that's the thing, is that Thalid needs, it needs something huge behind it in order to become a viable tribe, because yeah. the tribe of being slow in the game of magic is the tribe of being a loser. <laughs> Does the guy <laughs> that likes land still? Uh, so that's Land the guy Still, who loves Thalads Landstill is fine because Landstill actually can do something on the first turn And Landstill, like, is in the game on the first turn Thalads is not even in the game until the third turn
1: <laughs> Right, yeah, so that's true Anyway, talking about expensive things. Um, <laughs> like salads? No, like like Modern I've, Masters. I've got dozens of them. <laughs> I know. So moving from expensive Modern Masters to expensive food and drink, I know that a lot of the Team Serious guys have been planning on a trip to Chicago in the fall to go to Alinea. We had to Josh, look up Jack, the pronunciation
0: on that. On
2: that.
0: <laughs> Josh, yeah. Jack, like you are
2: one of those people. What do you think? I am. So I think we've been talking about it, uh, Jerry Yang and I and Jimmy McCarthy for,
0: I don't know, probably at least a year and a half. I, th- I think so. J- Jerry keeps yeah. on being like, so when are we going to get that outing together? Yeah. And what? it's happening. Why don't yeah, you tell so us I, a little bit about Olinia, Josh?
2: Well, I, I just finished reading the book. And so the chef of Olinia, Grant Ackitts, wrote a book called Life on the Line because he it's about him being a chef and then he gets tongue cancer which is a pretty terrible thing to get for a chef, chef, especially when you're chef of, what, the sixth best restaurant in the world, three Michelin stars. I mean, it's that's pretty bad. So really me reading that book got me excited to go. And today, Jerry failed on some flying fig reservations in Cleveland, so I was able to use his guilt into (laughs) convincing him to buy a
0: line of tickets. Nice. So So you have to buy tickets to the restaurant?
2: You do, yeah. So uh, I have paid... Three hundred and twenty-five dollars for a meal I have not yet eaten. Wow! So how does f- feel after that? I'm not worried about it. <laughs> it's very strong.
1: <laughs> so, what do you get in the meal? I have the menu up here. Yes, yeah, so the, like-
2: the menu is is you you get the you know it's a chef's menu. It's I don't know. I think it's like an eighteen or 18 course tasting menu. Yeah.
1: It looks like it's about eighteen courses. One, wow. two, three,
0: four. I guess I have to bring this up. Yeah, I mean, actually 20 courses.
2: Yeah, I think it's a solid three to four hours courses. of eating.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, I mean, and, you know, the restaurant is known for kind of being avant-garde and doing new things. I mean, all their serviceware is designed specifically for their dishes. I'm really um,
0: excited about this lamb dish that just has um, lamb? The, the biggest entero bang I've ever seen.
1: Yeah, they, <laughs> on their menu, they have a, a lamb dish that says lamb, and then it's followed by looks like uh, 8 periods, 5 question marks, 11 more periods, and then 11 exclamation points.
2: I think the idea is, and like, those depressing. are all the ingredients in the lamb dish. I think the lamb dish has, like,
0: a ridiculous amount of ingredients.
2: <laughs> or it's actually
0: spam, and it's just, like, this is lamb? Well, they,
1: I mean, they, so they, the, they have some some other interesting looking things on here.
2: So here's the the lamb dish has 86 separate ingredients. Oh, wow! Or 86 different
0: components. Interesting. That's, that's, that's but yes, that's
1: crazy. So so they also have some things on here. They have squab inspired inspired by Miro, which I assume is the artist. They have balloon, which consists of helium and green apple.
2: The the black truffle explosion. Yeah. With yeah, I saw may- that.
1: Parmesan. Is, is that safe?
2: Yeah, I believe so.
1: <laughs> That's actually how they make their money, is they kill you after oh, okay. 16. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. serve the black truffle explosion. And they, they have woolly pig, which is some
2: concoction of fennel, orange, and squid. Yeah, I mean, we've been talking about eating here for so long that I'm just psyched to finally be able to do it. I like that this also has fiddlehead ferns in it. Those, I've always wanted to try those. Those sound good. Well, I mean, you know, we're going to Labor Day weekend.
1: I, they, they won't be available in the fall because <laughs> they're a spring thing. Oh.
2: But, uh,
1: yeah, I mean, the, the menu looks insane. How, how does the menu change?
2: I think they just changed, you know, whatever. Huh. Uh, it's, it's basically like at the, the kitchen's discretion.
0: Yeah, sure. So when are you guys going?
2: Uh, Labor Day weekend Saturday. We're going to, uh, we have reservations at 5pm. And we're gonna eat probably for three or four hours, and then after that, we're going to the Avery, aviary? which aviary. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> which is their cocktail bar. What are you expecting to get out of this meal and cocktail evening? I have no expectations. Fun. Oh, okay. That's that's probably good. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot more exciting than money sitting in a savings account. That's true. <laughs>
1: no, I I think it sounds really cool. Like I yeah. said, if I if I had the three hundred and twenty-five
0: dollars to burn on a meal. I'd do it. So wait, it's 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 210 I see on the menu. Where does the last 115 come from?
2: So you have to pay taxes in And, it, and the tip. So any any meal, and it also includes includes service. Oh yeah. Does it, does it they, include
0: the the trip to the aviary?
2: No. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you wish. <laughs> it does not. Hey man, the I aviary also has a ten course cocktail menu.
0: Oh my. Which you're also doing. How much is that?
2: We're not doing that. Could you, you imagine Jerry it. Yang after ten drinks?
0: Yeah, I think I saw it about three weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, and he seemed fine. <laughs> in comparison. <laughs> yeah. He was just he was just being regular Jerry Yang.
1: Yeah, I'm, i I think
2: this is pretty cool. Hey, uh, we'll we'll put some pictures up in the uh, yeah. I mean, the dessert the article, they paint, I think. They paint the dessert on your table. I mean, the I'm picture really, of that painted dessert is,
0: is ridiculous. I'm really curious how that works. I, I want to know whether you just, like, whether you fork and knife it like classy people, or whether you just manhandle it. I, I think they probably tie your hands behind your back, and, and then you just <laughs> mash your face into you, you have to peck, peck at it like a chicken? <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: So we'll 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 definitely look for the return report from you and
2: what I'm looking forward three to it. months, well, four months. <laughs> and that's the that's the great thing about Chicago. I mean I'm sure we'll right. you know, obviously spend a ridiculous amount of money on this dinner and then also eat amazing food for twenty bucks the rest of the weekend. So. Right, mm-hmm, right.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it sounds really good. I'm, I'm interested to hear how it goes.
0: Well, it's happened again. You've wasted another perfectly good hour listening to Serious Vintage. I'm Jeff Mose. I'm Nat Mose. And I'm Josh Chapel. And we hope you'll join us next time for more Serious Vintage. Take a little trip. Take a little trip. Take a little trip to Z.
1: Alinea. (laughs) Alinea. 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 Alinea.
0: Oh, I bet we can find out from this video. Alinea. Alinea is a typographical symbol otherwise known as a pilcrow. It's Alinea. I told you. That's idiotic. (laughs) (laughs) No, Nat, it's idiotic. (laughs) You win. (laughs)